the National Archives podcast series. Writer of the Month Richard Barnett discusses crucial interventions, his book on 19th century revolutions in surgery. This talk was recorded on the 21st of January 2016. Um, just before I begin, folks, I'm sure this is obvious, but I am going to show you um, several, um, as uh, Carrie Ann said, rather visceral images of surgery. There's nothing here that you wouldn't find in a surgery textbook, and frankly, nothing here you wouldn't find in your own bodies if you open them up. But there's absolutely no shame in not being able to look at these images. So if you find you can't, um, as Lady Macbeth says, stand not upon the order, but go. Don't wait for permission. So... Um, about a year and a half ago, I woke up with a mild stomach ache. By the middle of the afternoon, I was rolling around on the carpet in agony. And if you think that's a cliche, I suggest you try it. A friend took me straight to the nearest hospital. And in doing so, it seems um, she saved my life. A CT scan, which was performed by a kindly man who was missing most of the fingers on his right hand. It's funny how these details stick in the mind. Showed that my appendix had burst and acute peritonitis had set in. After another three hours of racking, fiery pain in which my blood pressure fell so far that any more morphine might have crashed it completely, I was wheeled into an operating theatre. I spent two hours in surgery and several more in intensive care, or so I'm told. It might have been a decade for all I knew. I came round to find my surgeon, who was an elfin South Korean woman um, who looked really disarmingly like the undergraduates I teach at Cambridge, none of whom I would let anywhere near my abdomen telling my friend that if we'd waited another couple of hours, I probably wouldn't have survived. I spent another three days and nights in that hospital. I listened to the man in the next bed giving a former lover his bank details and then complaining to his current girlfriend when his ex cleaned out his savings account. Three times a day, trays of food were placed on a table next to my bed. I watched them, wishing I didn't have to smell them, and an hour later they were taken away untouched. Ward sisters brought huge cartoonish syringes filled with broad-spectrum antibiotics, and shushed them into a vein in my arm. As you may know, these drugs play absolute havoc with what is euphemistically termed bowel habit, so I hobbled to the loo when I could unplug my IV and my ECG in time, and soiled the bed when I couldn't. The nurses were endlessly patient, endlessly understanding, never reproachful. For that, I'm enormously grateful. Confined to bed and sofa for another week, I ate plain vegetable dumplings, slept fitfully and watched a liquid with the consistency and colour of Vimpto ooze out of a tube in my belly and into a little transparent bulb safety pinned to my pyjamas. The removal of this abdominal drain at the end of the week occasioned the most intensely painful few seconds of my life so far. A greasy medieval agony as what felt like yards of plastic tubing were pulled out through a small hole in my abdominal wall without pain relief or without even much of a warning by a tall, good-looking junior surgeon. I'd still like to break his nose if I could get my hands on him. All of this, all of this, has been part of my life for as long as I can remember. I've had surgery on my head, shoulders, knees and toes, and many places in between, at an average rate of one general anaesthetic every three and a half years since the age of nine, alongside a scattering of procedures under local anaesthesia. I'm not telling you this to elicit your sympathy. Frankly, I don't deserve it. Many people, and perhaps some of you, will have suffered far more than I and have been left to deal with far greater post-operative consequences. Only two of these operations have been what you might call lifesavers, and the remainder fall into the category of running repairs. Like a late 70s Datsun Cherry or the Tory front bench, I'm just not very well put together. 
just as the notoriously sybaritic King Edward VIII, sorry, King Edward VII, Prince of Wales, as you can see here, for obvious reasons, just as Edward VII became an expert at being entertained, so I came to think of myself as an expert at being operated on. With no alternative, I toughed out the pain and the indignities. The surgeon who mistook my gangly pre-adolescent self for a first-year undergraduate and bellowed at me to pull myself together as he hacked away at my inadequately frozen big toe. The time I found myself non-metaphorically pissing blood after bursting stitches in my bladder. By the age of 15, I was disconcerting anaesthetists with reviews of their venipuncture technique, flirting with nurses in the recovery room. I urge you to try that, it's enormous fun. Waving away counsellors and chaplains with the air of one who knew the ropes, one who had been through all of this before. Most of all, I began to look forward to general anaesthesia itself. Sinking into an inky, balmy ocean of absence is one of the great metaphysical experiences, and in the nicest possible way, I hope you all get a chance to try it someday. Now, for most of my life, I bounced back unthinkingly from these surgical encounters, like successively the growing boy, medical student and medical historian that I was, but this time was different. My physical recovery was fitful and slow, and for a year I had nightmares, deep depressions, not new but newly intense, and flashbacks. One cliché has it that surgical scars are emotional as well as physical, another that recovery means recovering into a different person as well as into a different body. But for a year I lived these clichés, and this was the year on which I, in which I worked on my latest book, Crucial Interventions. Now, Crucial is a series, uh, the second in a series of books. I'm, you've already heard a little bit about this. I'm writing in collaboration with Welcome Collection and Thames and Hudson. They draw on the rich and diverse holdings of welcome images, in this case to tell the story of the great 19th century transformation in surgery, using images taken from period textbooks, atlases and journals. In case any of you don't know, and I'm guessing since you're here at, a, at an archive, you are interested in archives, collections, um, material, culture. Last year, Welcome Images released most of its images, uh, most of its historical holdings under a Creative Commons license. And you can browse all of the images in the book along with pretty much everything I'm going to show you tonight. And I think something like 300,000 um, more besides at the moment on the Welcome Images website. Go and have a look at this. Anything you want to research, anything you will find material relating to it here. And under most circumstances, it's now completely free to use. So make use of this resource. It's a wonderful thing. Now, writing this book while struggling through my own surgical recovery left me with a set of questions at once historical and entirely personal. Time and again, strangers have switched off my consciousness and rummaged around inside me. How on earth did this become routine? And how could I write this history without falling into an attitude either of self-indulgent self-reference or supine, uncritical gratitude? As I've said, for modern surgery, were it not for modern surgery, I would be far less physically able than I am, and in any case dead twice over. Gratitude is scarcely an inappropriate response. And of all the modern clinical professions, surgery has wanted least for gratitude. Surgeons have reveled in the praise of others, and have praised themselves in terms that might make Jose Mourinho blush. Heroic, humane, unselfish, democratic, near-divine, all these words can be found in 19th and 20th century descriptions of surgery by surgeons. 
addressing the Congress, the International Congress of Arts and Sciences in 1904, the American surgeon Frederick Dennis went even further. He said, The science of surgery stands out in bold relief and conspicuous grandeur, apart from and above the others, in that it deals directly with human life, that most precious of mortal possessions, often lending to it not only a helping but a saving hand. At the same time, its story is so simple and so grand that the child and the savant alike may participate in the pleasure which the wonderful narrative is fitted to convey. You don't get much more self-confident than that. But why were surgeons so self-confident, so sure of themselves and, and their place in history at the end of the 19th century? If we could put this question to one of them, and just for example, let's take this chap, mutton-chopped, frock-coated Victorian surgeon George Critchett, a man who looks extremely certain of his own place in history. Critchett would tell us that in the second half of the 19th century, surgery had undergone a revolution. It had left behind its barbaric, bloody roots and had entered the age of scientific modernity. Well into the 1840s, medieval and even classic, classical Greek or Roman surgeons would have recognised a great deal of what went on in those noisy, dirty, crowded spaces called operating theatres. Here's perhaps the most famous representation of European surgery in the age before anaesthesia. This is a wonderful Rowlandson cartoon. I think the simple expression on the face of the patient tells you everything you need to know. I mean, this is Edvard Munch, sort of avant la lettre, isn't it? Dressed in their street clothes, surgeons and assistants, who you can all you can see are all men, set to work on patients who remained awake throughout their ordeal unless they were lucky enough to pass out. Operations were swift in the hope of minimising pain, shock and blood loss, and mortality rates were high, although perhaps not so high as we might think. A majority of patients always survived. By 1900, however, surgery was transformed. And here's another image that gives you a sense of where surgery had gone in a mere matter of 50 or 60 years. Operating theatres had come to resemble laboratories. You can see here we have surgeons, but also female nurses. Women had entered this space for the first time, clad in sterile gowns and working in near silence. This is not an 18th century kind of cockpit operating theatre. This is not a theatre in the other sense of that word. This is a hushed almost, I think, sacred kind of space that's being constructed. Anesthesia, you can see anesthesia being administered here. Anesthesia had taken conscious patients out of the equation, and operations by this point might take an hour or more as opposed to minutes or ideally seconds um, a generation beforehand. Antiseptic and aseptic techniques had dramatically reduced the rates of wound infection, and operations on the abdomen, chest and skull were routine. Indeed, journalists were starting to complain that new surgical diagnoses like dropped kidney had been invented simply so that scalpel-happy surgeons could claim a fee for operating. Nobody's kidneys ever dropped. Consultant surgeons were acknowledged leaders of the medical profession, and the great metropolitan teaching hospitals, guys, tommies, kings, were the citadels of their power. So in short, if we had to summarise, two technical innovations, anaesthesia and antisepsis, plus a generation of high Victorian surgical heroes, like our friend Critchett, had put the age of, had brought the age of agony to an end and had put surgery at the cutting edge of clinical practice. Now this is a very familiar version of surgery's history. It's been retold in countless pop histories, countless television programs. It may well be the story you're expecting to hear 
this evening, and it certainly isn't wrong so far as it goes. Anesthesia, antisepsis, and a host of new procedures did transform surgery's power to cure. But what I want to argue tonight, and what I've argued in Crucial, is that there are many other stories that we don't tell and we should tell about the surgical revolution. Stories that take us far beyond a handful of heroes and their pioneering operations. Let's take anesthesia, for example. Here's a heroic story. In November 1842, W. Squire Ward, surgeon to the Ollerton Infirmary near Nottingham, cut off the leg of a man called J. Wombell, a 42-year-old labourer. This was no ordinary amputation, however. Ward's assistant, the Middle Temple barrister, William Topham, was experimenting with a radical new technique for rendering patients insensible. Womble moaned once or twice during the surgery, but remained unconscious, and afterwards he said he had felt absolutely nothing, no pain. Was this the first painless surgery in modern history? Quite possibly it was. Was this the first general anaesthetic? No. Topham had mesmerised Womble. See, rather wonderful um, 1845 image of, uh, of, of how mesmerism was thought to work. The first, th the, look, the first surgical general anaesthetic is usually said to have taken place four years later when the American dentist William Morton administered ether to a patient at the Massachusetts General Hospital on um, 16th of October 1846, still celebrated today as World Anaesthetics Day. By the end of the 19th century, surgeons were marking this date, not the date of Womble's mesmerism, as the crowning moment of scientific and humanitarian progress. But the story of Ward, Topham and Womble and their experiments with hypnosis raises other questions we might want to ask about um, surgical pain. Physicians and natural philosophers had been experimenting with gases like nitrous oxide as far back as the 1790s. So why did anaesthesia take another 50 years to appear if surgeons were so desperate for it? Why did a few surgeons see mesmerism rather than chemically induced unconsciousness as the greatest hope for painless surgery? And why did some patients and practitioners initially resist the offer of painless surgery? For 10 years or so after anaesthesia came in, there were patients who preferred not to have anaesthesia. And there were particular groups of patients for whom it was seen to be, uh, for reasons we'll come to, a bad thing. You might think that before 1846, surgeons were heartily and necessarily indifferent to the suffering of their patients. Indeed, the phrenologist Johann Gasper uh, Spurzheim, the man who developed that phrenology head that one sees for sale in antique shops sometimes, Spurzheim argued that the brains of surgeons tended to exhibit large organs of destructiveness, enabling them to inflict pain on others without compunction. But if you read the archives, if you read the diaries and letters and memoirs of surgeons, we see them expressing intense ambivalence about the suffering they inflicted. Equally, however, the same sources remind us that surgeons' anxieties about inflicting pain didn't stop them pushing at the boundaries, uh, the accepted boundaries of surgical practice. We tend to think of 1846 and anaesthesia as representing a kind of opening up of the human body. As soon as patients could be anaesthetized, surgeons started diving into the abdomen and the chest and even the head. But this absolutely isn't the case. For three or four decades before 1846, surgeons, especially in the US, had been developing a range of complicated operations, many of which required a long period at the operating bench and many of which went into the abdomen and the chest. In fact, it was 18th century advances in surgical knowledge and practice which had already rewritten the scope and goal of surgeons. What anaesthesia did was to make the new ambition of surgeons and their new technical capabilities acceptable to the public. Now, anaesthesia in its modern sense, controlled 
reversible, administered usually through inhalation, has its foundation in the work of a handful of politically and intellectually adventurous chemists in the late 18th century. Joseph Priestley, um, the radical Birmingham chemist and Unitarian, seems to have been the first to prepare nitrous oxide in 1772. And by 1795, the young Humphrey Davy, along with um, romantic radicals like Samuel Taylor Coleridge, was experimenting with it at Thomas Beddoe's Pneumatic Institute in Bristol. Again, another very, very famous image. This is not the Pneumatic Institute in Bristol. This is the um, Royal Institution up on Albemarle Street in the West End. And you can see here um, Humphrey Davy lurking in the background. He's that rather dark Cornish figure holding the bellows. And you can see here various gases being administered to this rather um, well-to-do demimondish audience. And you can see the effect of the gases being administered um, to the chap here. It's a sort of uh, 18th century rocket, I suppose, or perhaps hovercraft. Now, five years later, Davy wrote that inhalations of nitrous oxide had relieved the pain of a bad tooth, and he said it may probably be used with advantage during surgical operations, but nobody listened to him. So why was nitrous oxide not taken up? If surgeons were so desperate, if patients were so desperate to get rid of the pain of surgery, why was this not leapt on immediately? Partly this was down to what Davy and his colleagues were trying to achieve. The Pneumatic Institute had been established to try and find new treatments for tuberculosis, which Beddoes and Davy understood as a lack of nervous excitation. Tuberculosis is essentially, in this model, the body sort of shutting down. So you need to excite it with stimulants. So in this sense, for them, nitrous oxide wasn't an exciting new surgical tool. It was a failed treatment for tuberculosis. So they weren't that interested in it. More than this, of course, some of you will have bred a, 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 a inhaled nitrous oxide, and you will know it produces vastly different effects in people who inhale it. It's not known as laughing gas for nothing. So perhaps its quality of numbing pain might not be universal. Perhaps it might depend on character, sensibility, individuality. Would it work for everybody? Or would it lead some patients to go into sort of fits of laughter and be uncontrollable in the operating room? A really crucial point here as well is cultural and even cultural and even theological attitudes. Um, cultural attitudes to pain at this time were deeply, intensely ambivalent. Older ideas of pain as a trial from God, something you should suffer, something that God has sent you to test you um, and improve you. Um, so you should suffer pain penitently and not dodge it with drugs. These ideas were only gradually fading under the, the influence of the Enlightenment and the, 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 the notion of kind of humane improvement. So there's still an idea that maybe suffering is good for you. Maybe surgical pain is something that should be endured. Now, there are really strange parallels between the development of early anaesthetics like nitrous oxide and the emergence of mesmerism. Both of these techniques first appear in the hands of late Enlightenment political radicals. Both induce a troubling state of suspended sensibility. It's a very strange new state that both of these drugs, both of these techniques, induce. The Enlightenment is fascinated with rationality and consciousness, but it's also fascinated with the edges of rationality and consciousness. So all kinds of strange states, hypnosis, mesmerism, dreams, think of the romantics and dreams, become objects of study. And in the early 19th century, both of these, mesmerism and laughing gas, become staples of travelling variety shows in Europe and the US. I've got a couple of posters here, the sort of thing you might have found in newspapers and sort of pasted up on walls, in, um, especially in the US here. I think my favourite is the one here on uh, my left on your right. 
a grand exhibition of the effects produced by inhaling nitrous oxide or laughing gas. Absolutely fantastic stuff. People, the effect of the gas is to make people laugh, sing, dance, speak, or fight. Um, men will be invited from the audience to protect those under the influence of the gas from injuring themselves or others. The gas will only be administered. The gas will be administered only to gentlemen of the first respectability. The object is to make the entertainment in every respect a genteel affair. Probably no fights will break out. So you can get the sort of very different theatrical, spectacular, in some ways rather vulgar and certainly populist context in which most people first encountered these, um, these techniques. Now watching these things, watching these ether frolics, these nitrous oxide frolics at country fairs in the 1830s and 1840s, several American dentists and doctors had the same idea and they began to pull teeth or remove small cysts from patients under the influence of ether or nitrous oxide. Now, this is a story as much of commercial opportunism as heroic humanitarianism. Quarrels over patents, priority, suicides, um, slanging matches in newspapers continued decades after their death. But word spread pretty quickly after Morton's demonstration at the Massachusetts General in October 1846. And on the 19th of December um, 1846, the same year, the dentist James Robinson, so nervous that his glass inhaler shook in his hands, gave the first British general anaesthetic to a patient at University College Hospital in London. Here's a much later imagining of what that scene would have been like, commissioned, in fact, by Henry Wellcome. Wellcome was very keen to endorse the heroic story of surgery and a bigger heroic story of medicine, like the one I told you earlier in the lecture. So here is the discovery of anaesthesia, or the first operation under anaesthesia, as a kind of classical heroic scene. Think of this in terms of um, Victorian history paintings of all kinds, heroic moments in the life of King Arthur in classical Greek and Roman times. This is speaking to the same idea of enshrining progress and heroism. In the foreground here, um, the man with his sleeves rolled up and, and the knife in his hand, this is Robert Liston, uh, the most famous, the most flamboyant, the most dashing of London surgeons in the 1830s, 1840s, also famously, um, so to speak, the fastest gun in the West. Liston still, I think, holds the record for the fastest amputation. He could have your leg off in, I think, 43 seconds was his record from a standing start. Um, he thought this was terribly quick. I think if you're a patient and if you imagine somebody holding you down and spending 43 seconds cutting off your leg, that would probably be the longest 43 seconds of your entire life. The problem, however, with Liston is that he is quite slapdash. Um, other bits get cut off as he operates. There's one famous um, procedure where if you're going to do an operation in this period, as you can see, you need other burly men, surgical dressers, to hold the patient down. So as Liston was operating, um, he, uh, he cut off the finger of one of his surgical dressers and the, the man bled to death. He cut off the testicles of the patient patient got an infection and died shortly afterwards and it's said that uh, operating theatres were supposed to be all male but but it was said that a woman had kind of um, snuck in at the back and was watching the whole thing and she fell down dead from fright having seen all of this so this is usually reported as the only operation in history with a 300% mortality rate anyway we none of that here as you can see you have we have the heroic scene we have the glass um, anesthesia um, inhaler and what is said to happen after conducting this amputation without a sound from his patient. Liston is said to have turned to his audience and said, um, 
this Yankee Dodge gentleman beats mesmerism hollow. Now again, this sounds, this is often told as simply the, um, the turning point in the history of surgery, as if after this operation, um, anesthesia is just widely accepted and there's, there's, there's nothing else to it. But in fact, responses to this innovation weren't as straightforward as one might expect. Firstly, and perhaps most obviously, there's the problem of how do you anaesthetize somebody? Anesthesia in this period consists either of fairly primitive glass inhalers, like the one you can see there, which is basically a glass bottle with a tube coming off it, or for liquid anesthetics like um, chloroform, essentially a, a sponge or a silk handkerchief held over the mouth of the patient and the, 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 the drug poured onto the handkerchief. So it's a very, very um, chancy business. It's very easy, fatally easy, to overdose and accidentally kill your patient or slightly underdose and the patient comes round in the middle of surgery and of course, you know, uh, hell breaks out. So there's a big problem here um, on the technical side. Nobody really knows how to administer these drugs. Now, in 1847, um, John Snow, who you'll probably know better for his work on cholera in Soho, but he's also a, um, a, a pioneer anaesthetist. John Snow um, applies sort of gas physics, temperature curves, pressure curves, that sort of thing, to the design of an ether inhaler, which is intended to regulate a safe dosage. What you can see here basically is something that you would put in a bowl of hot water. And the idea is the gas passes through all of this um, the heat from the water sort of turns the gas to a to a takes the gas to a to a to a set temperature and a set concentration. That means you're delivering a consistent dose to the patient. But even when they were given in lower concentrations, um, the effects of early anaesthetics could be alarming. Consumptive patients quite often turned purple and stopped breathing. Others bled freely when the first incision was made. More than this, as I've said, the state of anaesthesia, what it meant to be anaesthetized evoked characteristically Victorian anxieties. Now, Snow and others argued that anybody who was fit for the, the, the ordeal of surgery would be fit for anaesthesia. But in the first decade of its use, most surgeons reserved it for patients who were at the lowest risk of death or people like women and children who were thought to be less resistant to pain. There's also a long series of debates. Bear in mind, early, mid-1850s, Britain goes to war in the Crimea, so there's a long series of debates about whether anaesthesia should be given to soldiers and sailors. Will it reduce their pain tolerance? If they get used to anaesthesia, will they start demanding anaesthesia on the battlefield? Will they be less capable of going into battle and taking pain and suffering, um, and hence sort of um, you know, defending Britain? Other kinds of anxieties too. If conscious patients are taken out of the equation, will surgeons operate less carefully? If you're not there watching what your, what your surgeon is doing, um, will surgeons be inclined to be more slapdash and less careful with their, with their operations? Would, outly, would outwardly respectable folk suddenly become madmen or even nymphomaniacs under the influence of ether and nitrous oxide? As I've said, from, from, from ether frolics, from the kinds of places where most people encounter these drugs, it seems perfectly possible that that will happen to you. As early as 1849, newspapers were alarming their readers with reports of gangs using chloroform to uh, rob or kidnap victims. And drugs in, uh, doctors in both Britain and France were convicted of assaulting, even raping patients under the influence of the drug. Now, within a couple of decades, most of these anxieties had settled and anaesthesia became a fairly accepted part of surgery across Europe. But I think this shows that 19th century surgery relied really heavily on trust. It was not simply the case that heroic surgeons could come up with new techniques, new drugs, um, new ideas, 
and kind of impose them on their patients. Then, as now, surgical authority had to be negotiated with, um, with patients and with sort of the wider culture. Now, we can see these questions at work in the other great pillar of the surgical revolution, which is antisepsis. As I said, even before the, the first general anesthetics in 1846-47, surgeons in Europe and the US had for several decades been performing new operations in which they went into the abdomen and into the chest cavity. But most of these operations ended in failure. No amount of operative skill seemed to reduce the risk of patients succumbing to infection. Anesthesia had made more invasive surgery acceptable to the public and to the medical profession, but it was antisepsis that brought the notion of scientific surgery to public attention. And I think it's antisepsis that ultimately secures the status of hospitals as bastions of surgical power. It's thanks to antisepsis that we now think that hospitals are the place to have surgery, rather than having surgeons come to our own homes and operate on us in, in privacy. Now, this story begins, in a sense, not with surgery, but with anxieties over the city. By the middle of the 19th century, as physicians and politicians and civil engineers debated public health reform and the nature of infectious diseases, some people were beginning to ask whether the new industrial cities were really appropriate places for hospitals. Again, another classic image of the Victorian city here, a court for King Cholera. I think it's easier for us to forget that in the 19th century, nobody on earth had seen places like industrial Manchester or even industrial London before. These places were wealthy, they were powerful, they were seen as the centres of um, the national economy, but they were also seen as dirty, as diseased, as crime-ridden, as really a kind of disquieting vision of the future. If this was the future of the British Empire, many people didn't like the idea. And as I've said, dirt and disease here seem to go hand in hand. Influential voices like Florence Nightingale contrasted the 15 to 20% mortality rate of amputations conducted in the homes of the wealthy with the 50 to 60% mortality rate of the same procedure in large urban hospitals. In her Notes on Hospitals, published in 1859, Nightingale proposed that the very first requirement of a hospital is that it should do the sick no harm, and she argued that city hospitals were in fact responsible for much of the sickness and death that their patients suffered. Here she was drawing on a very old idea of infectious disease, a classical idea that disease is miasma, essentially a kind of poisonous emanation spreading from person to person through the air. So she argued that stagnant air in unventilated wards, along with miasmas from infected wounds and smoke and dirt and bad air from the industrial cities, were poisoning hospital inmates. A name was even coined for this, hospitalism. Um, described by the surgeon John Erickson as a general morbid condition of a hospital or of its atmosphere productive of disease. Now, Nightingale's solution was simply to sweep away the old dirty city hospitals, get rid of them completely, and replace them with rural, as she called them, pavilion hospitals. This wasn't an entirely new idea. A Parisian surgeon called Jacques-René Tenon had put this forward in the very late 19th, 18th century, this is, this is from Nightingale, but this is based on a drawing that you'll find in Tenon. Now you can see here, this is a hospital that's really designed around nursing. This is a place that makes it very easy to look after patients. It's not a place that's really designed for surgeons. And this became really central to the, the, the debates and the arguments over antisepsis. Pavilion hospitals like this were single-storey wards. They had tall windows 
as you can see, connected by kind of cloisters or glazed corridors, separated one from one another by gardens. So the idea was that they were clean. Good ventilation, regular fumigation, modern sewers, and crucially a routine centred on nursing care rather than centred on the demands of surgeons would eliminate hospitalism and reduce mortality rates. Now, debates over the value of pavilion hospitals crystallised around the rebuilding of St Thomas's Hospital in the late 1860s. Um, Tommy's used to be, roughly speaking, where Borough Market and London Bridge Station is today, but it was, it was swept away to make way for the, um, the railway station. In the end, a compromise saw St Thomas's rebuilt in the centre of London um, with a view of the Palace of Westminster across the Thames, where we now know it today, but built on a pavilion plan. You can see here something like pavilions connected with um, uh, uh, corridors, cloisters connecting them here. But of course, to the proponents of pavilion hospitals, this was completely useless. They, you, you built a new hospital right next to the biggest source of miasma in London, which was the Thames at this point. So Nightingale, um, although the Nightingale School of Nursing was here, Nightingale hated this hospital. She thought it was, it was badly cited. Now, many of Nightingale's opponents were in fact surgeons. Um, they saw her vision of rural nursing-centred pavilion hospitals as a threat to their still fairly insecure professional foothold um, in large city teaching hospitals. So the challenge facing young surgeons like Joseph Lister was not just to solve the problem of wound infection. He needed to solve wound the problem, sorry, he needed to solve the problem of wound infection in a way that validates large city teaching hospitals. In other words, validating the power base of surgeons. Now, Lister, you can see here, um, as it were, the two faces of Lister, the rather sort of young, um, debonair, dashing, serious young Lister, and Lister as he was almost at the end of his life. I think it's a great pity he never got to play Badger in Wind in the Willows. He'd have been absolutely superb. He was born into a fairly well-to-do Quaker family in Essex in 1827, studied medicine at UCL, and by 1860, he was Regis Professor of Surgery at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary. He was definitely a young man in a hurry. And it's at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary that he encountered um, the extremely high rates of surgical wound infection that, that, that characterised city hospitals. He also, at this time, was starting to read up in a fairly radical new idea that was appearing in the surgical literature, and that's germ theory. Lister read a paper by the French chemist Louis Pasteur. Pasteur's big argument... Um, is that things like fermentation, things like wine going bad, things like milk going off, are caused by microorganisms getting into it and reproducing and, and fermenting. This leads Lister to start thinking that, well, gangrene looks and smells like a kind of fermentation, so maybe it's microorganisms that are the problem here. So if this is the case, Lister starts to say, what can we do to keep germs out of wounds? He begins to experiment with a substance that's already being used in the treatment of sewage. This is carbolic acid, a byproduct of the, um, the new Victorian chemical industry. And on the 12th of August, 1865, he tries this out on a, on a patient for the first time. An 11-year-old boy had been run, run over by a cart, brought into the Glasgow Royal Infirmary with a compound fracture of the tibia. Essentially, that's a fracture where the bone isn't just broken, but sticking out of the skin as well. This is a kind of fracture that is very prone to infection, even these days, if it's not treated properly. Standard practice would have been immediate amputation. Get it off as quickly as possible. Don't allow it to become infected. Instead, Lister dresses the wound with a 
uh, lint soaked in a mixture of carbolic acid and linseed oil, and he has this regularly changed. Six weeks later, the boy walked out of the hospital with a fully functioning leg that hadn't been amputated. Now, over the next two years, Lister tried this again, seemed to work in other cases, refined his procedure, starts covering it in tin foil to stop the carbolic acid evaporating so that he doesn't need to change the dressing quite so often. And in March 1867, he published a description of his method in The Lancet. Don't read this. It's really not very interesting. This is the most boring slide I'm going to show you. Again, compare this with that painting I showed you. This is another document that is often taken to be a turning point in the history of surgery. You know, we have that, that scene of the first anaesthetic as one turning point, Lister's paper, the 1867 paper, as another turning point. Now, did this short article provoke an instant antiseptic revolution in Western surgery? No, of course it didn't, and for two very good reasons. Firstly, if you actually read this paper, what Lister is setting out here is not an entirely new antiseptic paradigm of surgery. What Lister is doing is basically writing a short letter saying, here's an interesting new way of treating certain kinds of wounds. It seems to work for me. Why don't you all try it and see if it works? Secondly, much more importantly, Lister's use of Pasteur's work was really, really controversial. By tying his technique to germ theory, Lister was almost guaranteeing that most of his colleagues wouldn't take it seriously. Germ theory was really, really controversial in this period. Again, we tend to talk as if germ theory came in and was instantly accepted. In fact, there's about getting on for a generation, something like 30 or 40 years of argument in the second half of the 19th century about the nature of infectious disease, about which version of germ theory we go for. There isn't just one. There are about nine or ten different versions of germ theory proposed over the course of this period. So physicians and surgeons and scientists continue to disagree about the nature of infectious disease. Even those who accept one version of germ theory don't necessarily accept Pasteur's version of germ theory. So what we see here is the beginning of a gradual shift rather than a kind of instant heroic revolution. Over the two decades after he publishes this, Lister gradually expands this technique for dressing wounds into a surgical paradigm based on the antiseptic power of carbolic acid. He starts rinsing his hands and his instruments in it before he operates. He also devises a steam-powered spray. So you can sit this in the corner of your operating theatre and while you operate, it will just sort of spray carbolic acid over the, the operating field. Also, as you can see, over the surgeons, over the assistants, and over your carpet as well. Lister says, if I'm going to operate on you, roll any expensive carpets up first and put paintings away and, and sort of clear some space. You can see here a, another really important point about antiseptic surgery. These men are still operating in their suits. Antiseptic surgery is about fighting germs. It's not about excluding germs. It's about fighting germs and keeping them out of the, out of the wound itself. So antiseptic surgery doesn't change the look of operating theatres. You can do this technique really anywhere. You don't need, at this point, a kind of specialist laboratory setting for doing surgery. Now, antisepsis did work. It did bring down rates of post-operative wound infection, but its appeal for surgeons wasn't simply practical. Surgeons were desperate in the mid-late 19th century to cast aside surgery's ancient associations. For centuries, people had thought of surgeons and they thought of blood, death, pain, suffering, butchery, execution. These were not the associations that a Victorian profession on the rise and, frankly, on the make wanted for itself. 
what antisepsis offered was a way to make surgery scientific, to put their practice on a kind of experimental, theoretical footing. Just as laboratory scientists aim to regulate experimental variables, so surgeons increasingly sought to manage and maintain the bodies of their patients. Infection control through antisepsis or later asepsis, control of hemorrhage through new devices like forceps and ligatures and tourniquets, and control of the patient through anesthesia. So increasingly, the operating theatre becomes a space of control. It's not a space of spectacle anymore, a space of performance. It's a space of control and, and, and exclusion. But antisepsis, as you can probably imagine from this picture, didn't really make for a very comfortable setting in which to actually do surgery. The New York surgeon William Halstead was an enthusiastic proponent of antisepsis, but his colleagues hated the fumes from his carbolic spray, and they made him take his operating theatre outside. He was forced to set up a tent in the garden of the Bellevue Hospital in New York because that was the only place his colleagues would let him do antiseptic surgery. His assistants developed what they called carbolic coughs. Carbolic acid is really quite nasty stuff. It'll burn your skin if you leave it on for any length of time, and certainly if you're breathing it in all day, you'll, you'll, you'll get, um, well, a carbolic cough. Worse still, his chief nurse, also his fiancée, Caroline Hampton, suffered painful dermatitis. Um, she turned out to be allergic to carbolic. This was relieved only when he persuaded the Goodyear Rubber Company to make the very first surgical rubber gloves for her, um, after which they got married. So the origin of um, surgical gloves doesn't lie in a desire to exclude germs from the operating theatre. It lies in the fact that Halstead wanted to marry his chief nurse. Now, as I've, what I'm keen to do here is to challenge a certain kind of heroic story of um, surgery. Not to overthrow it, but to say that there are other stories we can tell. And what I've tried to do so far is to, is to, to take that story and expand it on its own terms. But of course, there are other people, other kinds of individuals we need to bring in here. Histories of surgery that simply revolve around great surgeons and their pioneering operations do so at the risk of excluding other stories. Most importantly, of course, that of patients. We haven't heard from any patients yet. We haven't heard their voices, their experiences. Seen from the patient's perspective, the history of surgery is very often the history of suffering, the relief of suffering or sometimes the prolongation of suffering. Here's a good example of the latter. Having had surgery to sever scar tissue that was holding his right arm to his body, the consequence of a poorly healed injury he suffered in a Manchester cotton mill in 1820s, 18-year-old Joseph Townend made the mistake of offering his uninjured left hand in greeting to his surgeon a day or two after the operation. In his autobiography, Townend recorded what happened next. Do you offer a gentleman your left hand? Seizing my right hand, the surgeon dragged me off the bed into the middle of the room. With violence, he struck at the same moment with one fist my knee and with the other my elbow, sternly exclaiming, Stand up, man. You have not your mother for your doctor now. Immediately, my leg and foot were covered in blood. Scenes like this which are much more common than you might think. If you read, there's a, there's a genre of um, sort of uh, Protestant and evangelical spiritual autobiographies, and these very often include detailed descriptions of all the suffering that the, um, the author or authoress has been through, and we quite often find scenes like this. They're not just a matter of socially anxious surgeons violently insisting that they be treated like gentlemen. The whole point of that scene is you don't offer a gentleman your left hand, you offer a gentleman your right hand, and the surgeon is kind of deeply offended by not being greeted as a gentleman. As surgery became a treatment that patients might choose rather than as a last resort, so some surgeons began to devise operations that 
in the words of the historian Anne Daly, existed only in the minds of the doctors and their patients. The Harley Street surgeon William Arbutnot Lane, fine fellow, became notorious for charging patients large sums to correct dropped organs. Others offered surgical cures for auto-intoxication, chronic intestinal stasis, or focal sepsis. Now, one reading of this, of course, is as no more than avaricious quackery. This is captured rather well in the caption to an 1877 Punch cartoon. As with all Punch cartoons, you don't really need the image. The joke is in the caption. So imagine two surgeons kind of sitting at a bar and talking to each other. First surgeon says, What did you operate on Jones for? Second surgeon, A hundred pounds. First surgeon, No, I mean, what had he got? Second surgeon, A hundred pounds. So as I say, in some ways this is, this is professional avarice, but I think it also reflects the growing ambition of surgeons in the late 19th century. They wanted to turn all of medicine, all of the human body, into a surgical jurisdiction. They wanted to make surgery a cure for all diseases. What Elizabeth Blackwell, one of the first women to qualify as a surgeon, described as the itch to cut, was also manifest in attempts to control women's behaviour through surgery. From 1872, the American surgeon Robert Batty performed what he called normal ovariotomies, removing healthy ovaries in the hope that this would relieve his patient's symptoms of hysteroepilepsy or ovariomania. His London contemporary Isaac Baker Brown performed dozens of clitoridectomies without consent on women whose, hu women whose husbands had complained that they were oversexed or had been caught masturbating. Even before the emergence of anaesthesia, women had become the subjects of experimental surgery. From 1809, the Kentucky surgeon Ephraim McDowell was successfully removing massive ovarian tumours, and in Alabama, James Marion Sim developed a procedure to repair fistulas between the bladder and the vagina. Stories told about the women who underwent these operations give flashes of insight into what their experiences must have been. Jane Todd, McDowell's first surviving patient, I think surviving is a crucial word there, sang hymns to blur the pain during her 25-minute ordeal. The tumour that was removed was said to have filled a wheelbarrow. And most of Sim's early patients were slave women who would develop fistulas after long, long untended labours or a dozen or more pregnancies and certainly had not given their consent to any kind of um, surgical intervention, no matter how well meant. Surgery for women, wealthy women at least, at the end of the 19th century might have been less painful, but it could still be appallingly disfiguring. The radical mastectomy developed by um, Halstead, William Halstead in the 1890s involved the removal not only of the entire breast but also the lymph nodes, chest muscles and even parts of the rib cage. So this was deeply invasive, deeply disfiguring surgery. Now at the beginning of this century of surgical revolution a very different figure, the novelist Fanny Burney underwent the same operation, a mastectomy for breast cancer. Now Burney later wrote a long letter to her sister which is now one of the most famous descriptions of surgery in the age before anaesthesia. It's cited in almost every book on the subject, and it's certainly cited in mine. The passages recounting the operation itself are very well known. I think almost too well known in some ways. Writers tend to linger with a certain um, bloodthirsty delight over her descriptions. Less familiar, almost never cited, is Bernie's account of her condition almost a year after the surgery when she was actually writing this letter. She wrote to her sister, Not for days, not for weeks, but for months. I could not speak of this terrible business without nearly again going through it. I could not think of it with impunity. I was sick. I was disordered by a single question. 
even now, nine months after it's over, I have a headache from going on with this account. And this miserable letter, which I began three months ago at least, I dare not revise nor read. The recollection is so painful. Today, of course, we would call this something like post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't think we need to take modern psychiatric categories and sort of project them into the past to see that Bernie was clearly deeply traumatised, troubled, affected by this experience of unanesthetised surgery. So working on crucial interventions has led me to think again about the meaning of surgery for patients, not just as a set of technical procedures in a sterile room, which I suppose is how we tend to think about surgery, but also as an episode in the story of their lives. Surgery can have resonances, consequences, that go far beyond the time you spend in hospital. I hope readers, I hope those of you listening to this book, to this talk, will reflect on the people or the parts of people um, represented in surgical imagery from this period. Think about their lives, their suffering, the question of how we modern folk should look at these images in a way that sort of acknowledges their richness and depth that doesn't just turn them into kind of mere kitsch or, or, or gore porn, if you like. Writing of the images in my previous book, The Sick Rose, I said that they undermine the seeming integrity of the viewer's own body by foreshadowing its ultimate destruction through disease, injury and death. And in doing so, they conjure a particularly, peculiarly intimate image of the sublime. Now, with crucial interventions, and here are some of the kinds of images you'll find in the book, I personally find I can't look at these representations of corporeal fragility without seeing myself in them without imagining alternate versions of my own history in which I didn't come round from an anaesthetic or in which I did awake to find my own body grievously resected. So the thought I'd want to leave you with is this. For many of those who undergo it, the central experience of surgery is not awe or gratitude at the operative brilliance of a surgeon. It's learning to deal with the memory of pain, persistence, and to live in an altered, possibly a diminished body, one that's become newly visible and vulnerable and mortal. Surgery, even the best kind of surgery, can be a very abrupt collision with your own mortality and your own fragility. And these experiences may last days or decades or in some cases a lifetime. So in this sense, surgery, for all its triumphs, and I think we can talk about its triumphs, and I think we talk endlessly about its triumphs, Surgery, in a way, remains what it always was. Surgery is a necessary compromise, emotional as well as physical, between survival and wholeness. And I'll leave you with that thought. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.